Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. One of the things that really astounds me when I came to London was just not how many CCTV cameras there are, but people's total, I guess, ease with the fact that they're, they're being watched all the time. Like, people are really nonchalant about it. Yeah, it's strange. You know, I, I, I grew up in Cairo. Uh, that's where I came from. We have no CCTV there. Uh, although there are other kinds of ways that you feel <laughs> like you're always watched. Um, and it's, it's strange. I mean, the, there is something about it, uh, you know, people feel very differently about CCTV, I think. Uh, I mean, I'm one of those people who came and felt, okay, there's lots of cameras, but I kind of don't really mind. Right. Partly because, you know, it's mostly uh, unconnected, right? It's mostly, I mean, there's a shop has a CCTV, fine. I can see me going to the shop. Uh, maybe a, uh, you go to a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a business somewhere and I have a CCTV but it's all kind of disconnected but I think the big thing that you know started really bothering me is kind of the knowledge that all of this disparate data could be put together and really build a, a full picture of yourself right so it's, it's not so much being recorded but the sort of the systematic processing of the of the information uh, it's strange though but pe- people do have different perspectives on on safety like you know when I pointed there's, there's a whole battery of cameras pointing at my apartment and when I pointed out to someone they said oh that, that's good you, you'll be safer <laughs> and I kind of thought you know <laughs> we've sort of we've sort of there are some of us that are terrified of privacy and there are others that are terrified of not being watched yeah no absolutely and, and you have very different perspective and you kind of think about talk about things like uh, end-to-end encryption in whatsapp for example and uh, you have this whole debate about the security services and police not being able to access messages and how that's going to affect uh, um, security and all that. And you know that 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 that's that's something that makes sense to a lot of people. That argument uh, to others, I mean, the argument is simply: you should be, as an individual, be able to talk to other people without anyone ever knowing what you said. That should be a basic human rights. And the two things do clash. And these are the kind of things that we get with technology now that, that we, we, and there's no easy answer to them. I'm having a cup of tea uh, in London uh, with Sharif uh, El Sayed Ali, who's the director of tech for Amnesty International. Uh, it's good to uh, finally meet you in person. It's great to meet you too, Mike. I've been, uh, you know, I've been surveilling and stalking you for some time online. <laughs> well, at least you're. <laughs> Should writing. I be worried? Well, at least your yeah. writings and, uh, and and thinkings on this, and and you know, I, I I'm really interested in this because, you know, as much as we tend to focus on technology and the prospect of uh, better machine learning, improving our devices, and the way we access photos and watch television, there are some really big and important philosophical and ethical issues that lead us now. Uh, both government and business leaders need to be grappling with, and, and uh, this feels like the time. Uh, and Am- Amnesty itself seems to have gone on an interesting journey with this, really following the e- Edward Snowden revelations, which are almost five years ago now. Yeah, and uh, and I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite a fantastic time to maybe reflect on that. Um, you know, before Snowden, Amnesty, I mean, Amnesty has always been working on freedom of expression, and uh, of course, with the internet and everything, we started looking at how bloggers are being uh, affected in China, for example, you know, right. somebody being arrested because something they wrote online. But we never really looked at the technology itself, you know, not systematically at least. And um, when Snowden came out with his revelations, it was like, okay, all of a sudden was this big, massive 
uh, revelations about all these things we thought were just would be like happening in the future it's all the sci-fi stuff right the dystopian scenarios yeah. yeah and we were just caught sleeping you know we didn't even have an idea uh, that this could be happening and and so you know I think you know, it was kind of a really wake up call uh, for us at Amnesty and we uh, got together and said okay we, we, we really need to get serious about that um, and it took a little bit of time and we, but we got there uh, you know we started looking at the impact of mass surveillance on privacy on kind of on, on human rights and society in general on the impact of uh, surveillance technologies that are being um, sold everywhere with no kind of no safeguards at all uh, to spy on journalists, to spy on uh, human rights defenders, um, to now where we are, where we also uh, look at the impact of artificial intelligence, big data right. on human rights, on things like bias, on the impact of automation on the right to work. Well, is this really just a question of scale? Because uh, you know, journalists have always been uh, surveyed, uh, persecuted, hounded, followed uh, for their opinions, especially where they diverged from what the government thought was correct. Uh, but now with these technologies, it's not just journalists, it's everyone, uh, potentially. It's, it's, it's everyone. I think the, the ease of, I mean, there's a big difference between, you know, if, if you have to uh, spy on somebody and you have to send two trained officers uh, for, with a car, with equipment, uh, put in bugs in, in uh, kind of quite risky to do in someone's apartment or office and it's you know it's a heavy investment in money and time and personnel and, and it leaves a it leaves a trace too it, I mean because someone's approved this and you know there's an infrastructure around this absolutely and how, how many you know how many people can use can you surveil right yeah but uh, if you have access to everyone's data yeah. and this combination of data it's not only just your whatsapp messages or what you're browsing or um, uh, you know who you talk to on uh, um, uh, in a video call, but if you can get access to all of that or as much of that as you can, then you can really build a, a full picture of the person. Well, and the problem is, it's not just what we say; it's what the data says about us. Uh, I mean, one of the things that concern me about the way the U.S. drone program has shifted um, is that it, it used to be they needed a court order, you know, to take somebody out, but now they've got this thing called uh, signature strikes, which is they can actually act against you if your data suggests you're a person who would be um, of interest to the US government or potentially a threat. So, so I mean, this sort of algorithmic meta layer of, of, of the data imputing your behavior is sort of a step beyond even you know, our own actions. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's the, the algorithmic layer is really important because one of the things we got when we started fighting the UK government a few years ago after the Sonnen revelations, um, on the mass surveillance program uh, is that the government was saying, well, you know, no, humans aren't looking at, the, at, 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 at this data, right? <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, well, in most cases, it's, I mean, probably there are no humans looking at your individual data, but I don't know whether that's, that's, that's a good thing. Right. Because there's a, you know, I mean, now you can have a high level of automation, a high level of analysis, uh, algorithmic analysis that's undertaken, which means you can profile very large numbers of people in no time and if the profiling of the data I mean and it all depends on the assumptions that are put under this analysis and this profiling so mm -hmm. it opens the door for racial uh, religious profiling all of these things and and um, you know pe people fall, fall, on, fall on this net very easily the real issue here uh, you know as you say is that 
um, the lack of human people, human perspective in this means that you get these layers of complexity of algorithmic assumptions being stacked on top of each other. And when you get right down to a case officer who's just given a red flag, they don't really audit it all the way back to try and check all the assumptions of why that person's being attacked. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, and what, what, we, what you see in uh, a lot of cases is that the often, um, I mean, you find them in there's been some investigations done, for example, on uh, the use of predictive policing uh, tools right. in, in the US. And there was a really interesting ProPublica study, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and in some of these, you find that, I mean, sometimes even the, the public institution that's, you know, say, a police department, that's using the tools doesn't act, doesn't know how the tool works because it's proprietary information from a private company right. that's not opening it for whatever uh, business purposes. So if you don't even know how it's working, how can you know that it's being fair? And and I think there is there's this this uh, people are enamored by technology, by the possibilities of AI, by the possibilities of just tech in general, and don't just ask the basic questions. So. What does this mean if we want to protect our freedoms? I mean, does the 21st century rights activists need to be, uh, you know, a forensic data scientist? Well, they... <laughs> Rather than just being someone who can walk around the streets with a placard or writing letters. I mean, how do we, how do you upgrade the skills of an activist uh, to help people secure their freedoms? I mean, I think, you know, it's... We can't expect everyone to be an expert in, in AI or in data science, but but at the same time... You know, if you're going to look at uh, freedoms in the public sphere, at, uh, at freedom of expression, at things like discrimination in society, then you need to be smart about these things. You need to learn about these things. You need yeah. to read up. You need to understand how technologies works, at least at a level that allows you to know what questions to ask. I mean, no one's asking anybody to be a coder or to be able to build AI systems, but you need to at least just know what questions to ask. And that's key, and because otherwise we're just missing a huge part of the picture. Leaders, whether they're in normal organizations or sophisticated technological organizations, are going to have a lot of ethical dilemmas coming up. Um, I mean, just, just recently the whole Alex Jones yep. uh, thing with uh, Twitter and Facebook sort of raises the question of, uh, you know, how free should freedom of speech be, especially in an algorithmic age where the possibilities of manipulation and targeting is, is so extreme. Uh, What's your view on that? You know, I mean, I think that's that's such a difficult question to answer. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly easy to ask. <laughs> yeah, well, easier to ask. I mean, I, I don't actually, uh, you know, I find it very difficult to give a straightforward answer, but I'll try yeah. uh, as much as possible. So, um, I mean, we've done, a, so at Amnesty, we've done a lot of work on um, online abuse against women in the public sphere. Yeah. Uh, so we've looked at Twitter in particular because you know, there's, you know, there's quite a lot of abuse that can happen on Twitter. And, um, and it's a really important question because you know, the last thing an organization like Amnesty or anyone who cares about human rights wants is government say, well, you know, no, we're gonna have these big kind of restrictions on freedom of expression so that uh, this group is not abused, or these people aren't abused. Well, yeah, there's lots of excuses. Like, there's nothing easier than a government finding excuses to uh, restrict freedom of expression. And most, even the most democratic ones, probably will feel like will you know have this inclination because it's just buzzes. Yeah, it's just challenges uh, in many cases freedom freedom of expression. Just about challenging the authority. But the um, but at the same time, we know that online platforms can really be toxic sometimes 
for for certain people right and it that in itself we saw just the kind of abuse that many women leaders were getting was making them leave twitter or just not talk anymore it was silencing them which is also terrible so how do you solve this dilemma i don't think there's an easy solution i think companies have a big role to play mm. so you know when they talk about having community rules about having a safe um, environment they need to be able to to implement that properly and, and and work on it i think that's that's generally a better approach than trying to get it through a, a legislation point of view right and it actually could be a selling point in, in that uh you know being able to provide a safe environment not just for users but for brands um, yeah. is of commercial interest uh, i mean moderation is not a cost uh, it's something that you know as youtube has discovered is essential for their future yeah and i mean you know the thing is if uh, at some point if uh, if if a platform or if a space becomes toxic for people they will leave it you know they, yeah. they will stay on for a while and then eventually they will say well i've had enough of this it's just not worth it so I think for companies, even yeah, companies, a brand who's who's trying to sell, you know, to communicate with its uh, with customers, potential customers, I think it's it's in its interest to have a safe and friendly environment. But besides freedom of expression and the risks of surveillance, the algorithmic age and AI um, has other implications for even very practical things like the way we work yeah. uh, the, the, and and the workplace. Uh, what have been your concerns around you know automation, not just eliminating jobs but changing the nature of jobs yeah i, mean, I think i think i've been through various stages uh, in that journey uh, one from, <laughs> well, from denial <laughs> anger <laughs> yeah now absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was uh, it was utter panic <laughs> first of all and then uh, sort of uh, you know i think is because last few years there's been a lot of numbers about job losses ranging from everything from like 40 percent of job losses in the uk or uh, or yeah. 85% in Ethiopia to then others saying, no, it's just 5%, no, it's nothing, or, you know, we're just going to be more jobs. So somewhere in there, essentially, I mean, the only thing you can deduce from that, I think at the moment, is there's going to be disruption. Yeah. Uh, which uh, part of the equation is going to fall? I mean, I think that's something we're going to have to see. But I also think, I mean, that we, we, we fall, I mean, I think, and I'm talking about people in general, like societies in general, we fall into this very strange thing that we do to ourselves is that we just let ourselves let the future be decided by accident right by technological developments that happen by like products that emerge by some kind of vague regulation that's meant to solve something else but has a completely different side effects and we don't like we don't say okay that's what, what we would like our society to look in 20-30 years time and we, we think of, our, of regulation of policies public policies to, to get there Right, um, and so I, I think I mean in theory I think the uh, whether we have more jobs or less jobs or whether people need to work or don't need to work um, I think a, a big part of that is going to be should be about what we want as societies uh, but if we keep on doing what we've always done it's just going to happen to us but you know I, in many ways I'm not so much worried about whether jobs will come and go I'm more worried about whether we're going to like them the way they're going to turn out. Uh, it, it feels like in some ways uh, there's the risk of returning to this kind of a 21st century Taylorism of extreme workplace surveillance, monitoring. Uh, you know, you'll have a handful of people with very strategic jobs, but the rest of us may just end up working for algorithms, essentially. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's already happening, right? And, and the, the thing is, what we've seen already is that the nature of a lot of jobs is changing. It's kind of more gig economy type jobs. And, and it's this idea of 
you know, you're not working for the employer, you're more you're self-employed, you're kind of, you have the flexibility and the freedom, which really in, in, yeah. in other words means you have no security of contracts, you have no security <laughs> of employment, you have no insurance, you have no pension, all of that. You don't have a human boss, but you have a, a kind of an algorithm that's pushing you around. Yeah, exactly. It's not really an improvement on your situation. No, because you have less economic security and less, uh, you know, just generally even like access to benefits that, that you, people expect, like healthcare, for example, in some countries, or a pension. And, and then you, essentially, you are on the other side, it's being sold as this, you know, it's a weird platform, you know, we're just helping people yeah. live their lives and kind of have the flexibility. But, you know, very few people want that. I, I was blown away when I was in Shanghai that I noticed even the beggars on the streets all have smartphones. And they've got QR codes because they actually want people to donate straight to their smartphone, which, you know, on, on, Wei, on WeChat. And I thought this is really a vision of, of the kind of dystopia we're moving into where, yeah, everyone's got an iPhone. But that, do, that's, that doesn't mean that they're free. It doesn't mean that they have, you know, recognition of their rights. It doesn't even mean they have a home. No, absolutely. And I think what's worse is that whenever everyone has a score. Ah, uh, um, yeah. Which <laughs> is, you know, I, I, you know I, we know that, I mean, that's already happening in China. Um, so, th so they're working on. I, I, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this, though, yeah. be because uh, we we actually all have a score here too. We, we just don't see it. I mean, you have a credit score. Uh, the government's got some security score on you that they don't talk about. Uh, you know, you're being uh, you're being scored by a whole number of different platforms. Uh, it's just not particularly transparent. Uh, I mean, it's easy to see the Chinese social credit system as dystopian, but. Uh, if you think about the challenges of managing such a gigantic country, you know, which is growing so quickly, uh, I'm just wondering, is there, is, there a, a, is there an ethical way of doing that? Yeah, no, I, you know, I think I mean, we need to, because you mentioned that credit scores, which are everywhere in lots of countries, and, and I think we should be questioning these as well, because, um, I mean, what they do, I mean, is this... They can ruin lives, especially in America. No, absolutely. And, yeah. and, I, and the thing is, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you know, it's this really perverse system in that if you have less money, if you have less security, then you get to pay more in a on a interest <laughs> on a loan, which means you're less likely to be able to repay, to, to have more money. I mean, it's, it's, there's something very, very strange about right. it. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't actually, opt it, it optimizes for a... Um, a scenario that's profitable for financial services institutions rather than for human beings. Yeah, it's not optimizing for, for, for social good at yeah. all. And it's, it, the only interest is minimizing risk for, for the financial institution. But if you're saying, okay, you know, we want more people to have housing, then you, you facilitate them getting mortgages rather than saying, okay, you know, people who already have a lot of money already have a place, okay, they can get another mortgage or move to a bigger house, which that that's the kind of thing that's like it's it's the kind of thing that's kind of the accidental thing that uh, it kind of I think happens in society is that we end up in these situations because we have financial regulation laws and laws on on loans and, and things that allow banks to do certain things but we don't think about housing policy as as a main as kind of the main entry point for for this well, you know to, to your point of, that you made earlier about you know we don't have enough conversations about where we want to end up as a society uh, we we just sort of end up with what you know, with what tech companies give us or where the laws and, you know, drive us into. But I'm wondering whether, you know, especially in this, this AI age we're coming into, that the conversation that we need to have is not so much, you know, 
the society we want to live in, but the optimums that we want to, to focus on. Because there's always a trade-off, right? Uh, there are always trade-offs, uh, you know, even with freedom. Um, but we, but if these systems are more data-driven and more driven by algorithms, we do have choices about the, how we want to optimize them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, if you, I think, I mean, in my view, the, uh, I mean, most, almost all countries now, I think, are, I mean, mainly driven by GDP growth. That's that's, I mean, that's what we optimize. Oh, for. right. That's a great right. point. I mean, that's 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 a very old example, but a very powerful things of you know, uh, misaligned incentives. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, and you talk now, and now you look at the structure of companies and uh, and you think, I mean, GDP growth doesn't even say anything. I mean, it says less and less about the health of, of, of the society, yeah. of individual uh, wealth even, than, than it used to. And I think- that And things the, like environmental damage, even war can actually boost your, your GDP growth. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and it's, it's completely. I mean, I think it's 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 an extremely simplistic view. I think yeah. it probably at a point in history it made sense. Uh, perhaps GDP growth was a um, you know a proxy for a lot of other things, for just development in society and kind of people's individual uh, welfare. I don't think it is anymore. That's very clear. And and the, the, as long as we keep that as what we're optimizing for, I think we're just going to keep on getting more inequality, more uh, I think uh, disenfranchisement, which then leads to more um, uh, tensions in society, more kind of hatred towards migrants, towards uh, people who are different. Right, and and this has the potential to escalate as well once you add artificial intelligence into the equation, because you know if GDP is your underlying measure that you're optimizing for. And you've got systems in companies, in industries, uh, in governments, which are supporting that. Essentially, you're telling the AI that the most important thing is growth. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you should optimize all decisions based on that. And if you're optimizing everything for efficiency, uh, sure, I mean, you can have more, I mean, you could be more efficient than employing less people or uh, doing things quicker in certain ways. But I mean, what if, if that's what your end goal is, reducing uh, costs or increasing profit, then that's what you're going to get. It says nothing about how you're going to impact the environment, how you're going to right. impact uh, workers in your community. Uh, and the, the AI is not evil. It's, it's just following the direction set by human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we <laughs> fall into this thing of this, this Terminator <laughs> scenario of the AI is going to destroy us. I think yeah. uh, the only thing that's going to destroy us is, is ourselves. That's, that's why I like Nick Bostrom's uh, you know, analogy in superintelligence that the thing we most have to fear on this planet is a AI designed to maximize paperclip production. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this would be sufficient to destroy the world as we know it. No, yeah, no, I, I love that, that analogy. It's, yeah, it's quite a fun one. Um, I, mean, you know, I mean, you look at the... Um, I mean, we're so... Uh, we're so used to, I, I don't know, I think it's like almost, uh, that's our denial phase perhaps as a, as a species, as we're saying, no, it's the AI that's going to destroy us. The only thing that's ever destroyed anything on this planet has been humans. Right. Uh, the, the, this brings me to the, so the last thing I want us to talk about, which is if we look further into the future, uh, where we're now potentially cohabiting this planet, not just with you know, machine intelligence and robots, uh, but also potentially different kinds of human beings ones that have had you know, germline modifications, uh, have had augmentations, 
uh, who've got life extension treatments. I mean, there's potentially not just Homo sapiens anymore. There's this variance. How does it change the way we think about rights or, or even what it is to be human? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, it's a very important question to, you know, to start thinking about. Uh, I mean, it, this is one of those things where uh, you talked about these things to a lot of people and say, well, you know, it's never going to happen. But the thing is, I mean, the direction of where technology is going, whether it's um, AI, robotics, or um, on the genetic engineering side, I mean, you know that at some point in the future, it could be 20 years, 10 years, 20 years, 50, maybe 100 years, but at some point in the future, there are going to be quite a high level of human augmentation. And when that happens, um, you might have people living uh, 150, 200, 300 years, possibly, maybe more. You might have people with enhanced abilities. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think we, that it's, you know, if somebody, somebody who lives in very strong health, uh, maybe with some kind of cybernetic augmentation to 200 or 300 years, that's going to be a very, very different life uh, to someone who uh, lives a normal human life as now and dies at 70. And, uh, and you put that together with wealth inequality and, and you essentially end up creating two categories of human, at least. I mean, certainly from an economic perspective, I mean, there are massive implications of people not dying uh, when you think about the concentration of wealth. Uh, even just time value of money, you know, the ability to be able to save money for 300 years uh, without having to pass it on to the next generation will, it will, will reshape the economy. No, absolutely. I mean, I think th this is, um, unless there is a nuclear holocaust and we're all gone, civilization is gone, um, this is in our future. Uh, and that, that kind of human augmentation or uh, kind of more radical life extension potentially something that's, I think, very likely to happen in, 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 in the future at some point. And what it will do is, you know, and I think it, what's really interesting there is that if, if, if there are people, humans, who are very different uh, in, in their life, in the kind of in their outlook for how long they live and how they, they live, then how do you preserve that equality of rights? And once you start talking about that, then, then how do you think about how we as a species, uh, you know, if there's a, if we want to have this kind of, still a kind of equality between all of us, then what does it mean for other species that live on the planet? What does it mean for how we think about the environment we live in, about the planet we live in? And how do we go from a, a place where we, we talk about human rights being just that to human rights being part of a, a bigger system of rights that that are also about the, the rights of the planet itself, well, the environment. I mean, not just organic things, but do you think we need to think about sentient rights, like which potentially could include machines? You know, uh, I mean, my view on that is is very. I mean, you know, I think it does. Like the science, at least, uh, it doesn't look like this is something that's going to happen very soon. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not something we can discount. So it's something that could very well happen at some point that we have sentient machines. Um, and I think at the point at which, I mean, to me, to me the thing is, is not so much whether a machine is, has intelligence, but whether it has consciousness. Yeah. Because intelligence is, can be, you know, you can have something that does a lot of things that people do, that, that brain does, but has no concept of, just doesn't, has no consciousness whatsoever. This is actually a point I think Max Techmark makes, you know, which yeah. we, we could very end up worshipping or supporting this 
simulation of, of ourselves, but actually inside it's, it's just hollow. It's, it's just simulating our behaviors and yeah. our processes in a very intelligent way, but doesn't necessarily have anything that is really worth preserving. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what would be the most terrifying is if you actually believe something to be sentient, well, it's actually not sentient. And at some point you don't know and you have to make assumptions, right? In the same way that's kind of the old philosophical question of, you don't really know that anyone else is there or conscious. Oh, yeah. You're only aware of your own consciousness. Well, actually, the, the, this was uh, this was Sartre, who, you know, who said this. He said, we only know that we're conscious when we look at someone as if they're not conscious or meaningful, and we realize they're looking at us in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's that moment of seeing someone else's revulsion uh, that, that, yeah. you, that you actually realize uh, your own humanity. But there is a, the, the part of it is just about at some point you just have to decide there's a um the, there's a point where you have to like you make, you make the jump and you say okay i'm just going to believe that other people are conscious that this is not just a figment of my imagination and i think it's we, we will probably reach the same point uh, if there are machines that reach a level of human intelligence then that's and show what appears to be consciousness at some point you're going to have to say well you know it looks and appears to be conscious so i'm just going to have to believe it uh, but at that point, then, you, then this is when you start talking about machine rights. So you're an opti optimist? For the future? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, I mean, th there's always been, um, I think there's a very destructive side to humanity uh, and a very careless side to humanity. But there is also a very uh, a constructive and we, we kind of tend to be able to bring ourselves back from the brink a little bit. Um, I mean, I, th I think a lot of human progress has been based on technology. Almost all human progress is based on it's a combination of technology and human decisions. And it's always about how we make the decisions uh, about using the technology, whether it's electricity, it's the steam engine, whether it's, um, uh, you know, sewage systems or, um, uh, you know, antibiotics that make the difference. Uh, and I think we need this combination of smart, forward-looking public policy with technological innovation to drive the future. Uh, and if we do that, then I'm optimistic. If we just kind of let everything happen without any direction, then I'm, I'm not so sure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.